like holding a mirror up mm. uh, to your own faith tradition, and it demands more of it. Yeah. And yet there's some amazing findings. Like I found that in Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican and a Christian in the late 13th, early 14th century, he has whole passages that sound like pure Buddhism. For example, he says that he's talking about meditation and says you should sit there um, uh, without thoughts and empty your mind of all thoughts and so forth and be there without mind he says so it's pure buddhism and and dr suzuki the japanese buddhist um uh told thomas Merton that eckhart is the one zen thinker of the west hmm. now eckhart never met a buddhist he never read a buddhist book how did he know these things because he had plummeted into his own experience and his own soul as a christian and it had come to this common ground that i call the underground river that is a divine. this time too oh man part number three of our series uh for easter deconstructing easter this is the what if project podcast it's great to see you here uh this episode number 91 of the show we are inching towards that 100 mark and uh we're having fun this series i hope that you are um yesterday's conversation with the naked pastor was an interesting one uh we talked about some things uh after we hit after we ended recording and I was just talking to David. We both kind of said to each other, like, I've never, the stuff that we talked about in that episode, like, I've never really said some of that stuff out loud to somebody before. So it was like the first time that either one of us were vocalizing some of the things that we had been tossing around in our in our mind um, internally. And so it was fun to kind of open that door and invite you guys in uh, to kind of check it out and to take part in the, the conversation. So I hope that it maybe inspired you, hope it challenged you. A little bit definitely challenged me um, in my own thinking and in my own um, faith faith journey. This, though, episode number 91, today we're going to sit down with the, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox. And um, this is somebody who I'm relatively new to his work. Um, I, I read his book, um, Original Blessing. Also read his book, uh, The Stations of the Cosmic Christ. And he has really stretched my thinking. Um, a lot of stuff that he teaches is very new to me, um, but I find it fascinating. He's very big into creation, spirituality, uh, kind of the importance of the earth, the importance of the universe, and how all of that, all of creation is tied into us and who we are and the life that we live and our walk with God. So, so many interesting things. And we cover a lot of that in this episode and kind of hone in specifically on resurrection. So I'm excited to share it with you. Um, I think that you're going to get a lot out of it. I know that I I certainly did. Um, I had a whole lot of questions to ask him, and I left with a whole lot more questions to ask him. And so he has agreed to uh, join me on the show again sometime later. So we will see uh, when we're able to make that happen. Uh, real quick, patreon.com slash project, a place where you can go to support the show financially. Uh, link to that will be in the show notes of this uh, show has encouraged you, inspired you in your faith. Uh, consider giving to the show for as little as $3 a month, all the way up to $30 a month. 
Uh, there's tiers in between. Every tier gets a reward. So go check that out. What if Project uh, Community is a closed Facebook group where you can go to find people who are kind of expanding, uh, evolving in their in their understanding of God, and they're in there sharing their ideas, their thoughts, asking questions, expressing doubts. And the best thing about it is nobody's in there judging somebody else. Nobody's trying to convert anybody, evangelize anybody. Everybody's just in there having a good time and cheering one another on in their faith. Uh, the What If Project Heretic Shop is a place where you can go to buy some t-shirts, to buy some hoodies, track jackets, hats, stickers, mugs, all sorts of heretical things. Uh, go check that out. Uh, last week we had a backpack and a hat go to Tennessee. We had some t-shirts uh, go up to New Jersey. We've had blanket a blanket go out to Washington. We've had, uh, I think, mugs go to Texas. So Stuff going all over the place. Uh, stuff going to Canada. Go check it out. What if Project Heretic Shop? Um, the link is is long, but if you just go to the website, uh, whatifproject.net, click on store, and it will take you right there uh, to check out some of the heretical goodies. Special music for the whole series is from my friend Derek Webb. If you don't know him, Google him. His name will pop up. He has a brand new album called Targets, and it's wonderful. It's beautiful. It's all things in between, and uh, go check it out. I'll put the links to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Derek is a great human being with a great story, doing great things in the world, and uh, he inspires me deeply. Uh, So go check him out. You will benefit in much of the same ways, I am sure. So all of that to say, uh, again, this is episode number 91. It's part number three of our series, Deconstructing Easter, and it's my conversation with the Reverend, the Doctor, Matthew Fox. Enjoy. everybody, welcome back to another episode of the What If Project podcast. Uh, today, I am excited to introduce you to my friend, uh, the Reverend Dr. Matthew Fox. Uh, Matthew has an interesting story, and uh, I would say impressive resume, which I'll let him share all about. But Matthew, welcome to the podcast, my friend. It's an honor to talk with you. Well, thank you, Glenn. I'm real glad that you have a, a podcast like this to talk about real things and uh, at this very important time in history. Thank you. Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be open and honest with you uh, and our listeners as well. Your your work is uh, rather new to me, and uh, I've read I think I mentioned it in an email, but I've I've read uh, Original Blessing, uh, The Stations of the Cosmic Christ. I loved uh, your newest book that you actually sent me in the mail, uh, The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, uh, which is subtitled I have it right here, Fierce Wisdom for Hard Times. And uh, even though your work is new to me, though I find it. Uh, super fascinating and super intriguing. So I'm excited to ask you a few questions today. We'll talk a little bit about the resurrection because uh, as I mentioned, this uh, talk will kind of fall into a, a series that we're doing for Easter, but we'll see where the spirit takes us beyond that. But before we get into all those things, uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, who are you? Um, what do you What do you do? Some of the highlights of your, of your story. Okay. Well, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, I'd uh, 
six brothers and sisters. There were seven children. And there was a Roman Catholic family. And um, I went to public high school. My closest friends were Protestant or Jewish or agnostic. So I'd go to my, we'd have these great philosophical debates with each other. Mm -hmm. I'd go to my parish priest who was a Dominican and, and kind of get ammunition for the debates. <laughs> so he had me reading a GK Chesterton and some Thomas Aquinas and so forth in my high school years. And I was fascinated by that. So make long story short, on graduating from high school, I, I felt I would give the Dominican order a, a shot. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I linked up with them first um, in college for a couple of years, and then I joined them um, formally uh, as a novice. Hmm. So make long story short, I, I was a Dominican for 34 years. Um, and after I finished my theology, I did philosophical studies and then theological studies. And they sent me to Paris with the, um, with the encouragement of Thomas Merton. I wrote Merton about where to go to study, get a doctorate in spirituality, because I felt that, I said at that time, it would have been the early 60s, I said to my superiors, you know, my generation is going to be less interested in religion and more interested in spirituality. Mm. You don't have anyone here teaching spirituality as such, so why don't you send someone on, and I'm happy to volunteer. <laughs> so make a long story short, Merton said, I wrote him and said, go to Paris, go to the Institut Catholique in Paris. So that's where I did my doctoral studies, and um, I met my mentor, Père Chenu, C-H-E-N-U, a French Dominican who was very influential at the Second Vatican Council, mm. and I, I was in Paris right after the council, the late 60s. And um, he named the creation spiritual tradition for me. And he, I'll never forget it. It was like Paul falling off his horse because it was in class. And he said, there are these two traditions in Christianity. One begins with sin and the fall and redemption. But the other begins with creation. Mm. And, um, and they're so different because one is based on original sin, which in fact is a, not a Jewish concept. Jesus never heard of original sin. We have to understand that. Mm. Original sin was first used in the fourth century by St. Augustine. Uh, but so I wrote a book, uh, one of my 35 or so books is called Original Blessing, where I lay out how, you know, the scripture begins, Genesis 1, with the goodness of creation and even the very goodness of creation mm. uh, when, when, it's, when creation is, is uh, completed. So I just think that we've been on this detour and why the fourth century? Well, that's the century that the church took over the empire. And I think if you're going to run an empire, original sin is a great idea because it puts everyone in a pretzel about why they're here and whether they have a right to be here and, and uh, how empowered we are to be here. Hmm. And so I love in this, my most recent book, the one you referred to, Dov Thomas Aquinas, he has this brilliant teaching about salvation. He says salvation first and primarily means preserving things in the good, mm. preserving things in the good. He doesn't say anything about escaping hell or even gaining heaven. Mm. Uh, he's talking about preserving the goodness of creation. So original blessing, see the word blessing is just a theological word for goodness. Mm. And in fact, Aquinas, who was a declared saint and doctor of the church and a very, huge genius, he one of the great geniuses in Western culture. He, um, he, he has a phrase, original goodness. 
And, and um, so anyway, I just think we've been on this detour. The Jesus tradition, all scholars agree, comes from the wisdom tradition of Israel. The wisdom tradition is creation-centered. It's about finding God in nature. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's ecumenical because all of us are exposed to God's creation, whether we're Buddhist or Muslim or Jew or Christian or atheist. Mm-hmm. And so, and of course, this is the, the moral crisis of our time is the destruction of creation, the extinction spasm that we're living in. And so Christian spirituality, I think, really has a lot to offer at this time. And I think we have to relook at our, our sources for example, the teaching of the kingdom of God by Jesus and the kingdom of God, that is a synonymous with creation. Uh, the great biblical scholar Christopher Stendhal told me that years ago. Every time you see the word basileia, the Greek word for we translate as kingdom of God, you have a right to translate it as creation. But that's really what Jesus is saying. It's about the sacredness of creation. Hmm. And this is what religion should be about. And not just about our our egos that are afraid to die and afraid at what might happen after we die. That's so good. And I think for me, just hearing you talk, I mean, my, my whole upbringing was about, you know, the whole concept of original sin. I mean, I grew up in evangelical church. I went to a private Christian school from fourth through 12th grade, Bible college, seminary. And that was like the, the foundation. So as, as you're talking one of the questions that comes to my mind, which I ask a lot of people, so I'm interested to hear your response, and I think a lot of our listeners would ask is, you know, if original sin is not a thing and original creation, I think original blessing is or creation spirituality is the focus, then what, what's, the point of, uh, what's the point of Easter? What's the point of uh, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection? Why, why is that important if it wasn't to um, undo that original sin? Mm-hmm. Well, we want to look at death. And that's again. a big question, I realize. <laughs> well, sure, but it's an important question, especially sure. the season of Easter. Um, death is real. Mm. And um, death is, again, we don't want to commit narcissism here. All beings undergo death. We even know now that stars live, die, and resurrect. The supernovas live, die, and resurrect. So um, death is... is not something that we humans alone have brought down upon ourselves. It is a process. In fact, I see the, the Paschal mystery of life, death, and resurrection mm. to be played out entirely in creation itself. Um, that we all, all beings live, die, and resurrect. Mm. Now, we human beings, of course, we have a special issue, and that is that because of our incredible intelligence, imagination. Um, We can develop fear uh, that goes beyond the normal fear of preserving oneself against danger, Hmm. uh, but that um, conjures up this tremendous uh, uh, anxiety about about death. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Otto Rank, R-A-N-K, but he's one of the greatest psychologists of the 20th century. And one thing he did was he looked at the whole history of the human species from way back when we were tribal people right up through today. And he says, in his opinion, and he's a real cultural psychologist, uh, the number one issue in all of humanity's history has been the fear of death, the quest for immortality. 
And he says, when we first were around in tribes, it was a tribe itself that stood for immortality because uh, the individual was not that uh, significant as such. But if the tribe survived, then the, the individual participated in that kind of immortality. And he goes through history, for example, the pharaohs. So the pharaohs built these incredible tombs called pyramids with all this slave labor and everything. What was that all about? It was about that if the pharaoh had immortality, then the rest of the community would participate in the pharaoh's immortality. Mm. Or even the idea of a king. You know, the king dies and say, long live the king. So there, too, there's this vicarious participation in the king's immortality. And he goes through all of human history like this. And then he says, now, Ronk is not a Christian, but a Jew. But he says that Paul and Jesus put out the most revolutionary idea that's ever been put forward about immortality. They democratized immortality, and that is the resurrection experience, mm. that we all resurrect. And... Um, and, and Paul and Jesus put this out there, and he said, this could change history. It, it hasn't changed it that much yet. Mm -hmm. But his point is this. If humans could really get over the fear of death, and that's what the resurrection really means, then we could live fully. Mm -hmm. And live fully means you're not working out your, your hatred or your projection or your violence or your... A sadistic side onto one another. Instead, we're all learning to celebrate, to um, to heal, build community, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. So I think this is really brilliant, and it stuns me that it had to come from a Jew and not <laughs> right. a Christian to tell us about how revolutionary Jesus and Paul really were. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so I, I find great insight in that teaching from Adoram. That's really good. So I guess then it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, just trying to um, put your, what you just said into my own thought, but I guess it's more about resurrections, about being fully human now in this day, in this age, in this life, as opposed to uh, trying to resurrect and go someplace else later on when we die. Well, yeah. And here's how Thomas Aquinas puts it. And he lived in the 13th century, but he was brilliant and also profoundly deep and mystical uh, theologian. But he says that there are two resurrections. The first is waking up in this lifetime. Mm. And if you do that, you don't have to worry about the second. Now, what does waking up means? And, and he really invokes the scriptures on this. I mean, he pulls in uh, a letter to Galatians and so forth about Paul. Paul is often talking about waking up, waking up. And um, uh, Aquinas develops it and says, this is about the new creation direction brought about the new creation hmm. and and then this new creation becomes a common he actually uses that word a common resurrection that spreads to all people even to those who do not know hmm. christ so um his perspective is really very optimistic but his point is that we should put our energies obviously into loving and forgiving and building and creating in this lifetime and, and we should spend less time worrying about uh, our next incarnation. If, but he's not saying that, there, that there's not something after this life. Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican like he was and like I was too, by the way, I didn't tell the story that after 34 years as a Dominican, I was uh, expelled by the Pope um, for talking about such things as really? wow. women's ordination and original blessing and... and <laughs> And, 
the rights of homosexuals and so forth. But anyway, so then it became an Episcopalian. So I'm an Episcopalian priest now. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, so this this teaching from Aquinas, I think, is very appropriate again for our times because he's challenging us to live more fully, more generously, to practice the love that Jesus talks about in this lifetime. And if we're busy doing that, we should not be so busy worrying about another lifetime. We should put our energies into the kingdom and queen of God that is already among us, as Jesus said. That's really good. And another question I have is, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking about um, these kinds of conversations and how it's sometimes I find it very difficult to have this kind of conversation from this kind of perspective with people from my older um, tribe. And you had just, you had just mentioned that you were expelled by the Pope. And so you, you obviously understand having some difficult uh, conversations, I guess, when your, your faith is maybe shifting or evolving or growing. And so I'm wondering, like I know a lot of our listeners and people that I have spoken to who listen to the podcast, uh, it's kind of one of their, their pain points, I guess, is trying to talk to family members, trying to talk to uh, maybe their older church friends, trying to talk to maybe people they went to school with, they grew up with, who they're still in this very evangelical world. They're still very oriented around original sin, and that's kind of where their faith is at, but they've moved on, and they're finding it difficult to have conversations with those people. So I'm wondering if maybe you could give some words of wisdom uh, for maybe what you've learned in your years about how do you have those dialogues with people when you're on two, what seems like opposite end of the spectrum, you're both using the Bible, but in very different ways. How have you found, like what ways have you found helpful to maybe take down walls as opposed to walls going up, uh, build bonds, relationships, and move forward with disagreement? Well, that's a very important question. And it's obvious we're living in a time of, um, of great disagreement. Mm. Um, not just about religion, but about values in politics and, and elsewhere. So it's not an easy, uh, simple answer. But I do, again, Aquinas says that the first effect of love is melting. Mm. <laughs> and I just love that. The first effect of love is melting. Mm. So keep the love going, even if you can't keep the conversation <laughs> going. <laughs> uh, you know, again, don't over-identify one another with our knowledge or so-called knowledge or opinions and so forth, mm. but to keep the love going. And, and that means that in areas of action, common ground, for example, I mean, I would think most people today are very concerned about climate change and about the effects it's having and is going to have. I mean, look what's happening in Australia. One mm. billion animals have been killed in in the last month or two from the wildfires there i mean and of course the animals in australia are unique uh uh you don't find these animals elsewhere and of course the extinction spasm and the threat to elephants and tigers and lions and polar bears and whales and fishes and the rivers and the oceans and the rainforests and the and the other force i mean all this is something that's why a creation spirituality puts you in a bigger perspective. It's not just about what are we humans proclaiming as truth or not truth, but what is our impact on God's creation? Hmm. And and God is speaking us through creation. Uh, Again, another teaching from Thomas Aquinas I love, he says, Revelation comes in two volumes, nature and the Bible. Hmm. 
nature and the Bible. So nature itself, and, and this is the wisdom tradition, therefore it's Jesus' tradition, uh, that nature itself is calling to us to be beautiful, to be strong, to be courageous, and to be generous, and to be loving. And um, this, I would hope we could find common ground here with, um, with others of different tribes, as you say, or we have one foot in one tribe, one in another, or even different family members to find where is the common ground. And so working together to, um, I'll tell you a story. When I was a college student, my first year, so I was 17 years old, and I was going to school in Dubuque, Iowa, and there was a, a flood. Uh, the Mississippi was flooding. Mm. And we all went down to pack sandbags uh, to save the city. Mm. And I remember saying that. It was my first real experience of what I would call deep ecumenism or interfaith. I was literally packing sandbags with uh, Lutheran and Presbyterian seminarians <laughs> who had schools there in Dubuque with um, Jewish people. I'm sure there are some atheists too and the rest. But you know, when the crisis is so immediate and great, mm. you don't sit around arguing about our ideologies. Right. You go to work because you all recognize this survival is where we're at. Well, I think this is what the climate crisis can do for us today. They were all involved in this moment of survival and sustainability, not only for our species, but all the other species that we, that we love on this planet and that God loves because God has brought them forward over a 13.8 billion. So um, I think when it comes to action, uh, we don't have to agree on a lot of uh, philosophy. Uh, we have to uh, join forces and, and go to work. Mm. One of the phrases I've been, I've kind of latched onto, I don't know where I picked this up, but is that you know, even though we don't see eye to eye on something, we can move forward arm in arm. And we can, <laughs> we can yeah, that's great. I, I've not heard that. I like that. It's fresh yeah. and it's real. Very good. Yeah. And heart to heart, I hope too. Yeah, heart to heart, exactly. Um, maybe I'm push maybe I'm pushing this button a little bit too hard, but I'm wondering if you can give me like a practical example of what it might look like to have that conversation with somebody. Like I, I imagine mm. I imagine like a family gathering, you know, sitting down for whether it's like a Christmas dinner, birthday celebration, and there's family there where there's disagreements about different things and sometimes things are said that are not very nice but what what can somebody do to kind of bring the conversation back to a place of of unity um mm -hmm. of, a, of a of a moving forward arm in arm and heart in heart as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to get one person to see things the way that i see it like what what would a conversation look like what would somebody uh -huh. say well, of course, one has to use one's own intuition and mm -hmm. artistry and the rest. But one thing that comes to mind from your question is that you mentioned birthday, you mentioned Christmas, would be, and I'm sure Thanksgiving is another such occasion. Yeah. But each of these feast days, if you will, um, they they carry. If you go deeper, you know, they carry a message that we can agree on. For example, Thanksgiving. You know, what are we thankful for? You know, that thanks is one of the primary prayers of our lives. In fact, Meister Eckhart says, uh, if the only prayer you say in your whole life is thank you, that would suffice. Mm. Uh, and Aquinas says that the essence of religion is thanks. It's about supreme thanks and gratitude. So to go deeper about what are we grateful for? I mean, our existence, for, for food, for health, 
mm. for uh, being here, <laughs> for breath, mm. uh, for the, the planet that evolved to allow our lungs to uh, take in the healthy balance of oxygen and nitrogen and the rest. So, I mean, if you go deeper, and again, we bring overall creation into it, mm. uh, I think it takes us in a bigger space. And the same is true, like you say, birthdays, okay. Are we happy to be alive? Are we happy to have been born? Why? Mm. Um, and of course, there is nihilism in the air today. There are people who are saying, we don't have to fight climate change because our species is done for anyway, etc. I've met people like that. There are people writing books about that, about giving up, and they're making money and giving retreats about giving up <laughs> and, and all this, and it's scary. So um, trying, again, trying to find that, that common ground go go deeper than the than than everyday journalism, <laughs> and back to the the principles of of the the miracle that our species exists at all, mm. and that we have all this potential for joy and wonder and gratitude, and and awe. Even to throw out the question, you know, what's an awesome thing that you've experienced lately? Mm. Um, because awe, as, as uh, Rabbi Heschel says, is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. And so if you can move from knowledge to wisdom, uh, wisdom takes us to another place. And, and wisdom is a heart place. And wisdom is feminine all around the world. In the Bible, she's feminine. Sophia and Chokmah are feminine. Mm. And um, so this brings in, I think, a more maternal uh, rather than a more... Um, patriarchal or I win, you lose, reptilian brain attitude. Mm. Uh, I think we have to diffuse a lot of the reptilian brain today mm. to get to that mammal brain again, which, which is where compassion happens. And we all surely can agree on Luke 6 when Jesus says, be you compassionate as you created heaven is compassionate. But that's the heart of Jesus' teaching. And compassion also means justice. And, and working for justice at all levels is part of uh, Jesus' um, teaching. Mm. It's really good. I guess it's it's we live in a world where there's dichotomies. There's there's this and there's that and there's them and there's us and there's we <laughs> versus them. And I guess so. It's what I hear you saying is instead of you know making maybe making statements that are going to put me over here and you over there, it's more seems like asking questions about. You know, how can we come together? What can we agree on? What can we bond over? What can we experience unity around? Um, as opposed to saying, well, this is what I believe and you need to believe, you know, you believe that and I believe it differently. I, I like that. Yeah. And if you and getting excited, like I'm excited about Thomas Aquinas, obviously, but getting excited about, about people, even from the past, who have wonderful ideas about how to be a Christian. Hmm. Um, some of the evangelical ministers I've met, and I, I haven't hung out with that many, but I remember one, uh, I was giving a retreat to Lutheran ministers. Hmm. And at lunchtime, this one minister said to me, these people you're quoting, Thomas Aquinas, Meister Eckhart, Hildegard Bing, I've never heard of them. <laughs> and I said, well, they were Christians too, and they were very bright, and they worked hard at it, uh, I'm sure, like you're trying to do. But... Um, I said, whom did you hear? Whom did you study in the seminary? Well, he said, we studied these 20th century theologians, and then we went back to Augustine. And I said, well, you know, that is <laughs> a big lacuna between the 4th century and the 20th century. Uh, there were 
16 centuries of effort by some very, very generous and inspired and holy Christians. Mm. And it's a, it's a shame that you've missed out on them. So, you know, um, listen carefully and you can even pick up one of their books. That's what I've been writing about for, you know, what I've written about 36 books, but I've been trying to bring back this wonderful tradition of Christ spirituality that was kept alive by these great figures like Hildegard of Bingen and Meister Eckhart. And this is Christianity too. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think like you said, before we hit record, you said that, you know, sometimes the, the evangelical world tends to forget that there's this rich history around what, what they think or what we think that we know of the last 150 years or so. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. kind of arrogant to think that, that a, a 150-year period summarizes everything right. in, in Christianity. And especially at this postmodern time, you know, mm. postmodern consciousness uh, needs pre-modern wisdom because postmodern is about leaving the modern world, not, you know, taking what's valuable, but, but seeing, seeing it differently. Mm. And I think the pre-modern consciousness that you found among indigenous people, but also among medieval uh, theologians and mystics is extremely valuable today because it doesn't begin with a human. It's not narcissistic and anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. That's the modern consciousness. Mm -hmm. And while we learned a lot in the modern age, including how to get to the moon and back and <laughs> turn <laughs> electricity on and all right. the rest, uh, there's a lot, we've had a lot of knowledge, but not an awful lot of wisdom. Mm. And the wisdom may be more ancient than modern consciousness or the last 150 years. So I think there's a special invite today uh, uh, to these pre-modern thinkers. And I think this is one reason that Hildegard of Bingen is speaking to a lot of people, um, both women and men. And, uh, but so too is Meister Eckhart. And then, of course, from other traditions, you have Rumi and, and Hafiz from the Sufi tradition. And, and, you know, these great poets of the soul uh, should not be ignored because, um, again, Thomas Aquinas says that, um, that truth, whoever utters it, all truth, whoever utters it, comes from the Holy Spirit. Mm. So the Holy Spirit is not tied down to a particular tribe. Uh, the Holy Spirit, as John's Gospel says, blows where it will, just like the wind does. Mm. And it, the, and as Aquinas says, every tribe, every culture has had its prophets. Mm. And um, this is part of the wisdom tradition that um, we can learn from so many. And today, of course, we're literally rubbing elbows with people from a Buddhist tradition or a, a, a Sufi tradition or other tradition, indigenous tradition. So I think that the Holy Spirit is inviting us to learn wisdom from one another. And we don't have to apologize for what Christianity has to offer because it has a lot to offer, and Jesus especially has a lot to offer. Hmm. But we got to know it. You know, the Dalai Lama says the number one obstacle to interfaith is a bad relationship with your own faith tradition. Hmm. And I think a lot of Christians have been living in a very small room, uh, a, a very small version of what Christianity is. And therefore, they're, they're not prepared to, to recognize the wisdom in other traditions and ask the obvious question, which is this. What do our traditions have in common? Yeah. 
Now, I wrote a book years ago called One River, Many Wells. Mm-hmm. And um, I took 18 themes that I felt all religions of the world have in common. Themes like the sacredness of creation or um, meditation or the question of life after death or um, the theme of joy, the theme of, of um, compassion, uh, the theme of developing our spiritual warriorhood and so forth, the theme of our holy imaginations, our creativity and so forth. And I, find, I found that really, because I went through all the traditions and I, they're poets and they're mystics and they're scriptures. And um, I just think that that's the way we're invited to think today. And you don't have to surrender your Christianity. You bring the wisdom from that tradition to the table. Mm. And, and good heavens, it's obvious the human species needs all the wisdom it can get. So I really yeah. want to keep others away from the table. Yeah, it's so, it's so true. I, I recently read uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Holy Envy. Mm. And uh, she talks in there about how she was teaching a world religions class for all these years. And uh, she would take students on, you know, tours of different temples and churches and meet different faith leaders. And she said that what she learned is that uh, other religions, we can honor the faith of other people. And that doesn't mean that we're converting or that we're leaving our religion behind, but we can almost envy what other people do in a sense to make us better uh, Mm -hmm. in our own faith. And she said like, you know, she sees things in Buddhism and Islam that she loves. And it's not that she's going to pack up her bags and leave Uh her faith in Christianity and go somewhere else. But it said, she says that that makes me a better follower of Christ and we can move forward together. Definitely. It's like holding a mirror up Mm. uh, to your own faith tradition and it demands more of it. Yeah. And yet there's some amazing findings. Like I found that in Meister Eckhart, who was a Dominican and a Christian in the late 13th, early 14th century, he has whole passages that sound like pure Buddhism. For example, he says that he's talking about meditation and says you should sit there um, uh, without thoughts and empty your mind of all thoughts and so forth and be there without mind he says so it's pure buddhism and and dr suzuki the japanese buddhist um uh told thomas Merton that eckhart is the one zen thinker of the west Hmm. now eckhart never met a buddhist he never read a buddhist book how did he know these things because he had plummeted into his own experience and his own soul as a christian Hmm. and had come to this common ground that i call the underground river that is a divine. And um, that's where I got the title from One River, Many Wells, that there are many wells into the underground river. We call them Christianity, Judaism, Sufism, but they go, God is the underground river. Mm. And we can fight over the wells instead of taking that deep journey. But it's just stunning to me that, it, that Eckhart found truths that Buddhists have also found and even use very similar language. And to me, this demonstrates how the Spirit has worked uh, universally and still wants to work through many traditions. Mm-hmm. And um, because uh, the, the Buddhists today have a well-developed practice of meditation, obviously they have things to teach us in the West about how to go deeper into silence and how valuable silence is. Mm-hmm. My striker says, nothing in all creation is so like God as silence. So we have so much to learn from one another. It's, it's a wonderful, from that point of view, it's a very marvelous time to be, to be on the earth. 
uh, both that we can go deeper into spiritual practice and and uh, traditions together, but also we can fight together, struggle together to save this planet as we know it. And um, I mean, Martin Luther said there are three articles of faith, and the first is creation. Mm. But you know, we're so busy talking about redemption that we leap over creations. We're taking it for granted, yeah. and that's why the earth is in so much trouble. We have to kind of back up and rediscover how sacred a creation is. Thomas Berry says, we will not save what we do not love, and we will not save or love what we do not recognize as sacred. Wow. So I think that's at the heart of everything, too, covering that sense of the sacred, not the sense of I'm right and you're wrong. So uh, you, wrote, you just wrote this book on Thomas Aquinas. You've been studying him for uh, obviously a long time. Uh, what would you say to our listeners is the what's, the, what's the most important thing that you've gathered from Thomas Aquinas's teaching that you'd want people to take forward with them? Am I, each of my chapters in the book, it's a short book deliberately because I mean it as, to be a spiritual handbook yeah. for activists. And um, so each of the chapters, I think the 31 chapters is a sentence mm. from Aquinas. So the very first chapter, go, uh, yeah, the sentence is this. He says, um, the experience of God must not be restricted to the few or to the old. Mm. And then, of course, I kind of riff on that for a few pages. That's the chapter. But I really love that. It's about the democratization of the experience of God. And I think that religion sometimes wanders from its essence, which is the experience of God. That's what mm. spirituality is about. And it gets into so many things, including dogmas and doctrines and fights and buildings and, and, <laughs> and, and uh, finances and all the rest. But, but let's boil it down to what, what's, what it's really here to do. And, and actually Aquinas also says that, that the essence of religion is supreme gratitude. We're here, mm. That's what religion is. We're here to say thank you. Well, you can't say thank you for something you don't experience as beautiful and good. Mm. And uh, so, but again, I did go back to that original one, the experience of the young. I, I love Aquinas has some wonderful passages about the young. And, and you know, like in Benedict's rule in the Benedictine order, which is over 1500 years old, um, he has a passage where he says, when there's a real crisis in the community, something really deep and important, we should listen to the youngest one in the community first. Hmm. Why is that? Because the Holy Spirit is more at home with the young, that there's less defensive on the, and the young are less invested in the current status quo of things. Hmm. And so um, this whole invitation, I mean, look at Greta Thunberg today. Now there's a prophet at 15 years of age. Now she's 17, I guess. But the point is the Holy Spirit has called her forward with all of her weaknesses and imperfections that we all have. And, and she has, you know, the Asperger's syndrome or something like that. But my point is that, um, uh, that Aquinas, well, as brilliant as he was, and he's one of the greatest geniuses of, of human history, of Western history. He's like Einstein. Um, and he only lived to write 20, to, he only worked for 20 years as a theologian. Uh, and he wrote an immense amount of books, but profound books and commentaries on the scriptures and everything else, including science. Mm. And that too, I love about Aquinas, that he, he invites science in. He says a mistake about creation results in a mistake about God. 
Therefore, we ought to be studying creation real carefully. And remember, I quoted him earlier, that revelation comes in nature, not just in the Bible, both nature and the Bible. Hmm. Of course, now we know the Bible is about 3,500 years old. Nature is about 13.8 billion years old. Duh. So maybe God has been revealing the divine self in many, many ways through the history of creation and not just through the Bible book. So um, I love the fact that Aquinas talks about the experience of God being at the heart of everything. And so we want to ask, well, how do we experience God? In what circumstances? So um, we talk in Christ Christian about the four paths, about we experience God in awe and wonder, reverence and gratitude. That's the via positiva. So this is called the via positiva, the positive path. We experience God in the via negativa, that silence and meditation letting go of all thoughts. Mm. But it's also, of course, grief and suffering. We do experience God there. It opens us up. And then we experience God in the via creativa, in our creativity, in our imagination, mm. in our birthing. And it may be birthing anything from birthing babies, the sacred moment of a child coming forward, to a birthing poetry and movies and podcasts and, mm. and all the rest. And then the via transformative, the fourth path, is the path of justice and compassion. And all these other paths lead up to that. So you might say the four paths represent the four experiences of the divine. So to work for justice and compassion, for healing and celebration, the via transformativa, that too is an experience of God. And these experiences are not restricted to the few or to the old. Young people taste these things. And middle-aged people and old people do. <laughs> and we want to celebrate that and recognize how these experiences of ecstasy and union, you talked about wanting uh, the one, uh, these happen on a regular basis. Meistercher says, for the person who is awake, and you and I have been talking about being awake, that's the meaning of resurrection, uh, breakthrough does not happen once a year, once a month, once a week, or once a day, but many times every day over and over and he says in breakthrough i learned that god and i are one so these breakthroughs happen we have these unitive experiences with god um, and with christ uh and with nature which is the cosmic christ hmm. we have these on a regular basis if we've kind of cleansed our windshields and and we're seeing life with a with a, a clarity and a perspective that i think the the the, the Jesus story allows us to do. Wow. I think it's so interesting that we've been talking about, we started off talking about Easter and, and resurrection and it led into this conversation about, about oneness and coming together. And as you were talking, I was uh, trying to think about this verse that I, I couldn't, I couldn't remember where it was found, but I looked it up uh, on my phone real quick. Uh, John twelve thirty two, where Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Mm. And maybe, maybe it's fair to say then that maybe that's the real meaning of resurrection, right? Is this sense of oneness and bringing all people together. Well, that's right. And huh. that's uh, how Aquinas talks about the resurrection in terms of the new creation. And he says, um, in Christ Jesus, uh, as he quotes Galatians, in Christ Jesus, neither does circumcision or uncircumcision have any value, but a new creation does. Mm -hmm. The life of the risen Christ is spread to all humanity in common resurrection. 
Yeah. Christ's resurrection is a cause of newness of life, which comes through grace or justice. Hmm. That's Aquinas commenting on Paul Galatians. Yeah. That um, is that the grace of resurrection uh, spreads across the world, hmm. and um, that's how he understood Easter, I think, in its in its primal meaning, and and then we bring in that whole idea that Easter assists us to overcome our fear of death so that we can live fully. And that means to live within the kingdom and queendom of God um, and building it uh, in our lifetime. Uh, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. And I want to ask you one more question before, before you go. Um, the book that you wrote, the stations of the cosmic Christ, I have a section in there about, um, resurrection. I just want to read for you a quote uh, real quick and then just ask you to respond to it. But uh, you say, how am I being resurrection for others? How am I life for others? Uh, to be resurrection for another, I need to be resurrected for resurrection for myself. That means I cannot dwell in darkness and death and anger and oppression and submission and resentment and pain forever. I need to wake up, get up, rise up, put on life even when days are dark and my soul is down and shadows surround me everywhere. I have to refuse to participate in my own oppression. And I love this because uh, as I said before we hit record, it kind of makes resurrection less about some unreachable future achievement <laughs> that uh, belongs to a few or maybe just belongs uh, to Jesus alone and really makes it something that you and I and everybody can participate um, in every day. And so I wanted to ask you if you could just maybe uh, take us a little bit deeper into uh, those statements and talk to us a little bit about what does it mean to be resurrection to myself? What does it mean for me to resurrection to other people? Well, I thank you for the question. And um, reading that whole book, The Stations of the Cosmic Christ, uh, there are 16 stations and seven of them are these I am sayings. Yep. So not just, I'm the resurrection, but I am the vine, I am the door, mm -hmm. uh, I am the life, I am the bread of life. Um, all this is cosmic Christ theology, because cosmic Christ theology is not just about Jesus, it's about how all of us are other Christs. Mm. And this is found in the scriptures, but it's often been neglected. In fact, the earliest scriptures, uh, that is Paul and the Gospel of Thomas, written before the Gospels, um, they uh, have these rich uh, passages on the cosmic Christ, uh, mm. like uh, Colossians. Um, Christ is one who holds all things together in the heaven and the earth. So the idea of the cosmic Christ is not some 20th century invention. It comes from the very first sources of, of the Christian story. Mm. So each one of these I am sayings, um, you can t turn around, not only how am I the resurrection, but how am I um, uh, a door mm. for one another? You know, how am I a door for others? Mm. How am I a good shepherd? Now, in a time of ecological collapse uh, and danger, that's a tremendously pertinent archetype of, for our time. How are we good shepherds? How are we caring for other uh uh, beings, the, the animals, and so forth. But back to your specific question, uh, how am I a resurrection for, uh, for myself and others? Well, of course, that very question puts responsibility on us. Mm -hmm. See, 
the cause of Christ is the light in all things. It's the numinosity, the radiance, the divine light in all things. That's John 1. Now, science is on board. Science is telling us every atom in the universe are light waves. So every being is beaming. <laughs> every being is beaming. And this light, I mean, one thing I learned in doing that, that book on One River Many Wells is that the synonym, the metaphor of light, is the most common metaphor around the world for the divine. Mm. Uh, Buddha talks about being enlightened, of course, but also being a, a light unto yourself. Mm. And, of course, Jesus talks about, well, the Christ talks about, I am the light of the world and so forth. But you find this light imagery in African religions and Celtic religions. It's all over the place. Really, really interesting. Mm. So how are we light for one another? Um, and, and so this puts responsibility on us, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Jesus didn't do it all. Mm. Uh, we are other Christ too. So we're called to be uh, good shepherds and vines to one another and bread, but also resurrection. So like I say in that passage you quoted, we don't have the right to live in doldrums, to wallow in our pessimism or our, our self-flagellation or carrying on messages we got when we were young, maybe from parents, maybe from teachers, maybe from pastors, that we're so unworthy to be here or something like that. No, it's our job to stand up and say, look, the universe has birthed me of 13.8 billion years of gestation. I'm here and there's work to do. And it's a glorious place, this very special planet uh, of which we found none yet, anything like it. And quit feeling sorry for myself and get on with it. So self-love is very important. Aquinas says you can't love others. Well, Jesus said that. You love others as you love yourself. If you treat yourself like some beaten down worm, um, then how, how are you going to treat other people? Mm. In fact, you're going to be set up for authoritarian figures who are going to come along and, and tell you that they will save you. This happens with Hitler because the Germans had been beaten up by the First World War and the armistice after it and the Depression and everything else, and they weren't feeling good about themselves. But Jesus says you love others the way you love yourself. Mm. So, of course... Uh, we have to learn self-love. If you don't learn it at home, that would be a sad thing. Uh, or at church, that would be a sad thing. You have to go out and find it. And you learn it from nature. Take Mary Oliver's story. You know, she was abused by her father, sexually abused as a child. And she went to her mother, and her mother went into denial and, and didn't support her at all. So the day she graduated from high school, she left home and never returned. And she says it took her years to get her life back, to find her soul again. But look what she's given the world through her poetry, and it's creation-centered poetry. It's, it's spiritual and mystical because that's where she found her healing in, in nature, that nature was much more friendly to her than her parents had been, mm -hmm. and so forth. So um, there are so many ways by which grace hits us and moves us. And we want to be always on the lookout, like hunter-gatherers for grace and how it's entering our lives. Sometimes it comes through the scriptures, sometimes through uh, worship, but oftentimes it comes through being in nature. Um, one wonderful California mystic here, Bill Everson, uh, he says that experience God in nature or experience God not at all. 
that is often in nature that people find the bigness and the generosity and the beauty that is um, that is the presence of God in our midst and the grace of God in our midst. Meister Eckhart says, nature is grace. Nature is grace. St. Augustine split grace in nature. He also split uh, the masculine and the feminine. He's a terribly um, dualistic thinker. Mm. And... Um, and but Eckhart and Aquinas and others are trying to heal that split. That nature is grace. And ask any newborn, newborn, any parent with the newborn child, what a mystical experience it was. That experience of unity and, and brilliance with God and one another when they bring a newborn child into the world. That's right. So would you say then that a, a part of this creation spirituality then is as we see how nature uh, cares for us, even like with the sun and plants and animals, that that's how we can then learn to care for ourselves and thus care for other people. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, the work of organic farming, healthy farming, permaculture yeah. uh, farming, you know, that is about preserving the good, isn't it? Yeah. So that's what salvation means, according to Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians Christianity has ever produced. Uh, yeah, that the work we do then to to render the planet healthy and our diets healthy and our bodies healthy and of course even exercise and all that that mm -hmm. doesn't have to be just about preening yourself in front of a mirror for your girlfriend or boyfriend. It can also mean about giving thanks to God that you have this body that deserves to be to be beautiful and healthy. Wow, this is so good. Thank you. Uh, well, thank I have, you. I have a thousand more questions to ask you. Uh, <laughs> well, we can talk again. We'll I enjoyed your again. questions. Yeah, I'm this glad is... you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Uh, before you go, you said you have 37-ish books that you've written. If someone were to go to Amazon and look at them, uh, where do you think that they should start? What's a good first one to pick up? Well, Original Blessing is a very um, foundational one. Okay. It contains a lot of these themes that we've been talking about. Um, and it undoes that original sin thing mm -hmm. um, for us. So that's one place. But, um, uh, you know, I, I find great joy in reading these wonderful creation center mystics like Meister Eckhart. So my, I have a little book called Meditations with Meister Eckhart, mm -hmm. but a more recent one, um, Meister Eckhart, a mystic and um, warrior, mystic warrior for our times, that uh, lays out his thinking and puts, I put him in the room with other thinkers, with Rabbi Heschel in one chapter, hmm. with Carl Jung in another, because Jung says he got the key to the unconscious from Meister Eckhart, hmm. and with Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist, and so forth. So you can see in this amazing 14th century uh, thinker how uh, ecumenical he was, because he went deep in, into his own Christianity. And uh, I think, therefore, he really is a, uh, a guide for us also in our time. And I think this new book, The Tao of Thomas Aquinas, brings that out too, that we have these wonderful ancestors uh, that we should, um, you know, we should run with. Uh, I think they're eager to, to assist us today, that we need more wisdom. And I think their lives, you know, you, when you know their stories too, what they suffered and so forth, yeah. uh, and what they went through, uh, these people weren't just sitting in some ivory tower someplace. Uh, no, sir. And Hildegard of Bingen, too. Uh, she was this incredible musician, 
an absolute genius of a musician. So you, we have her music now. It's all been brought back. And she has so much to say, an amazing, amazing poet and prophet. She took on the popes of her day. She mm. took on the emperor. I mean, she was one, <laughs> one feisty woman. Yeah. And so anyway, there's, there's a lot to explore. Yeah. Lots to explore and lots of work to do, as you said, right? Yes. Inner work and outer work. For yeah. sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for uh, joining me and I will be in touch and we'll do this again soon. Ah, thanks, Glenn, and thank you for your good work. Thank you, sir. You as well. 